The Guardian. We were trying to make a statement, definitely. The statement was that if we're going to finish recording the diversity of life on Earth, we're going to have to use accelerated, efficient methods to do so. And here's one. That's Professor Michael Sharkey, who you'll be hearing from a little later on in our second episode of the AOE Takeover of Science Weekly. I'm Patrick Greenfield. And I'm Phoebe Weston. And we are biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. Our work centres around the destruction of the natural world and ways we can protect it for future generations. If you haven't already, check out part one of our takeover, where Phoebe explored how small physical differences between species of fungi have big consequences for what we know about them and what we know about protecting them. In that episode, we also touch very briefly on something called DNA barcoding, which might help with the fungi classification issue, but also with lots of other organisms, including plants and animals. I'm handing over the reins to you on this one, Patrick. As we heard last week, DNA barcoding identifies species based on a small section of their genetic code, not morphological or physical characteristics. To say DNA barcoding has rocked the field of taxonomy would be, well, correct. And the work of Michael Sharkey is one of the great ways to illustrate why. I am an emeritus professor from the University of Kentucky. I work on taxonomic studies. So that means I describe new species and classify insects. How many insects have you described in your career? I suppose somewhere near a thousand. I started my PhD thesis in 1983. What I started out with was a revision of a group of parasitic wasps. What I did was morphologically separated all the different species and then wrote a key that distinguished those species. I think there was 103 species and described each one morphologically. So I talk about how big they were, what color they were. You'd say length, 8.5 millimeters. And then you'd go head. This took years to accomplish. I think my PhD was a three-year PhD, but then it was another year of work after that. A long, big, grueling exercise. And it goes on and on like this until you've described every aspect of the body. And when did you make that fateful decision to DNA barcode the species you described for your PhD? Yeah, that was quite uh, something. I guess it was about five years ago. So I was revisiting my PhD thesis with all this extra information. And in the process, I realized that the PhD thesis was Uh, not very good. It was worse than useless, actually, because what I did was I published 103 names, most of which are now presenting disinformation to the body of knowledge that we have. So, yeah, I was converted powerfully and depressed for some weeks afterwards, finding out how, how bad the PhD thesis was with all the work that I put into it. But that has been now very much modified by how happy I am 
about having discovered the barcode as a tool to discriminate species. I really feel like my research has a lot of meaning now. So I feel, I think, much like somebody who's discovered some sort of spiritual thing that, wow, I've found it now, and here I am, I'm on the right trail. Wow, that is quite the endorsement of DNA barcoding. It can evoke strong emotions from people, both in favour and against it, as we'll hear. Michael said he first tried DNA barcoding five years ago, but when did this technique first emerge? I'm Paul Bear. I'm director of the Centre for Biodiversity Genomics at the University of Guelph. And I'm an evolutionary biologist by training. And you are also most known, I hope it's fair to say, for being the father of DNA barcoding. First of all, what is DNA barcoding and why are you so renowned for being linked to it? Well, DNA barcoding is this concept, this approach to discriminating species that proposes that one can develop very effective identification systems based on surveying very short pieces of DNA in the genome. So if we're thinking about animal species, perhaps about one ten millionth of the genome is all you need to look at to tell one species from another. What's the process for doing that? Well, the process begins with encountering an organism. And it could be as simple as swabbing the organism, if it's a larger organism like a vertebrate. Or in the case of really tiny organisms, it might require the entire organism. Think about a a single protozoan. In the case of mid-sized life, like an ant walking across your lawn that you might want to know what species it is, it might have to sacrifice one of its six legs. If it's a millipede, one of its many legs. (laughs) And so can you do this with any part of the genome? Well, no, actually. Uh, Certain regions are particularly informative. All regions have some phylogenetic signal, as we would term it. But when one looking at differentiating species, one wants to look at pieces of DNA that change quite quickly. And so the target regions are restricted. Another way to gather DNA for barcoding is just scoop up some snow. Okay. Heading out to collect a bit of snow on this track that's heading through here. Probably a fox. Paul sent us this recording of him walking out in his front yard in the middle of a Canadian winter. Just collect a bit of snow. Extract the DNA from the snow. And we'll find out uh, who left this trail. The fox would have shed the DNA on the trail. And because it's cold, the DNA is perfectly preserved. He loves DNA barcoding so much that he's doing it on wildlife by his home. I guess I can't really talk because I look at fungi with my mum at home. And watching the wildlife by his home is part of what inspired him to pursue DNA barcoding. Growing up, he would encounter hundreds of species exploring nature around Canada. Then, his work as a biologist brought him up close with thousands of species. That made it very clear to me that morphology-based approach to telling species apart just didn't scale with the capacity of the human minds. And one day at the supermarket, he finally had an idea for how to tackle this problem. 
I was walking through the um, grocery store in my hometown in about 1998 and just looked at the barcodes on the items on the store shelf and thought, wow, all these different items were telling them apart by reading very short numerical strings. And why can't we do that with species? Because after all, they've got these short numerical strings. They're called a DNA nucleotide, strings of DNA nucleotides. It should be possible to tell species apart by just reading a tiny segment of the genomes. As you know, and as, as I know, some of what you've just said to some groups of taxonomists is heresy. Surely barcoding is going to miss some species, and there are dozens of concepts of, of what species should be and are. Why is it that genetic divergence should have primacy over, over all the other species concepts? Well, I don't think, Patrick, that it should take primacy, but I am sure that when it comes to operationalizing an understanding of life, on our planet, it is the only approach that's going to deliver. Perhaps it's only 95% correct or 93%. If it's even 85% correct and it can be done with this speed and it can deliver this capacity to survey biodiversity at a global level, it will be doing its job. There's no replacement for the wonderful knowledge that resides in the minds of those people that study particular groups. I have the highest admiration for my colleagues in the taxosphere who just know so much about the group of organisms that has attracted their attention, but getting the big picture, tracking life on a planetary scale as we abuse it is something that we cannot wait for. A common criticism of DNA barcoding is that it's applying something that's binary to evolution, that by the very nature of evolution, it's constantly changing. And if subspecies and species and all life on Earth is constantly evolving, why do we need to put things into boxes? Why do we need to have something like DNA barcoding that says, bam, genetically diverged, it's gone past that 2% threshold or 1.5% genetic divergence threshold, this is probably another species. Why do we need to put things in boxes? Well, I think these boxes, it turns out, are important units for management because these are the books of life that have long histories of being written, our own species. Does it matter that we don't just group all hominids and say they're just a blur, we can't tell them apart? Uh, no, we can tell them apart. Our species is quite distinct from the chimpanzee, and the chimpanzee is quite distinct from the bonobo. Does it matter that we can tell them apart? Of course it does, because each of those units represents millions of independent evolutionary events over very long periods of time. Yes, there are quibbling situations. There are situations where it's, the species boundaries are not clear. But most species on our planet have long histories of independent evolution. And that's why we should care about them. And of course, we should care about the evolutionary significant units that comprise them. That too comes with barcoding, at least in part. We do get a sense of the amount of time, isolation, independent evolution in those barcode records. Another criticism of DNA barcoding is if we're going to use DNA to determine what counts as a species, we should profile the entire genome and be more precise. It's something I put to Paul. 
Well, of course, you could look at entire genomes. The difference is in terms of cost. The genome, in most cases of multicellular life, is somewhere between 1 million and 10 million times larger than the sequence required to tell apart the species, the fundamental units of life. So if money is unlimited and sequencing capacity is unlimited and data interpretation capacity is unlimited, it would be fine to look at entire genomes. But of course, in the world we live in, resources are limited. So if one's interested in tracking species and their distribution and abundance patterns, it's far cheaper to do it by looking at a slice of DNA than the entire genome. Paul, an implication of your work that I find quite haunting is when there, I don't know, fires in the Amazon or parts of the Arctic are melting or or wherever there's kind of environmental destruction going on. I now linger and think, did we know everything about that ecosystem or area and did we know the full extent of life in that place? Is that something that we need to worry about? Yeah, Patrick, I couldn't agree with you more. We are looking at potentially the largest destruction of knowledge in human history. Burning books in the dark ages is nothing in comparison with what humanity is doing to life on this planet. We're clearing forests in the tropics. We know they're incredibly rich in species that have never been looked at. They're being driven to extinction. We've never read that book of life. Every one of those books of life is a thousand times longer than the longest book ever written by a human. And the way scientific advance is made, you can never predict. Scientists are magicians, right? They make the impossible possible. And if we preserve the genomes, there's a possibility that we may be able to bring those species back. You cannot, at the moment, reverse extinction, and you'll certainly never be able to reverse it if What happened on that last day with that last insect specimen, it dropped to the forest floor and it molded on the floor for a day or two. And that was the end of that book of life, unread. Are there still drawbacks of DNA barcoding now? Of course there are, it's absolutely perfect. No, (laughs) no technology is perfect. You know, there still is a cost associated with with acquiring a barcode records, not as inexpensive as going in the grocery store and swabbing the barcode on the tin or the object on the box uh, past a scanner. That would be a magnificent advance when we can read these target pieces of DNA without any direct biochemistry. DNA barcoding also isn't easy for everything. It's difficult to tell corals apart with barcodes, for example. With them, you need to do more genome sequencing. Right, and when I spoke to Gothamy in the last episode, she said that she found DNA barcoding pretty challenging for fungi as well. But Paul envisions a future where we're able to read the DNA of all biodiversity on planet Earth. We don't necessarily need boots on the ground, that we have devices basically swimming through our oceans. And as they swim, they read the DNA molecules in the water and they beam that up to ground orbiting satellites. And that information is then relayed to a global bioassessment network. And the same kind of thing in terrestrial. Things like giant spider webs sitting on the Earth's surface just reading the DNA and the organisms that come in contact with them. I mean, that's biosurveillance. 
Wow, that sounds incredible. How does the rest of the community view DNA barcoding? I'm thinking back to Michael Sharkey, the emeritus professor we heard at the beginning. Right, he was a complete convert. And he thinks most of the community has come around in the last couple of decades as well. The vast majority of the taxonomic community thought that barcodes were horrible. There was great opposition to it. And now the vast majority of the taxonomic community knows that barcodes are valuable in delimiting species. How valuable at finding species? Can DNA barcoding work on its own? For complete accuracy, Michael doesn't think it's quite there, and many experts don't either. He says the way DNA barcoding works is it separates what it considers species into different bins. I look at those bins and see that morphologically all the specimens in one bin are similar to each other. In my last revision, one bin had seven species in it, and other bins that had two species. He thinks the error rate depends on a group of species you're working with. He works with insects, specifically wasps, and a specific family of wasps. The error rate, if you want to call it that, for the bin algorithm in my group is 2%. And some groups, they just work okay for. And I'm sure there are some groups where it doesn't work at all. If you're working with vertebrates, nobody would start using barcodes only on vertebrates, but they would use barcodes as a tool to try to distinguish between cryptic species of vertebrates. But when looking at the bigger picture, Michael was not too concerned about DNA barcoding lumping two or three different species into one. This is not a problem because in morphology, we would say 10 or 20 species are in fact just one species. But Michael took a different approach recently. Michael and his co-authors just released a paper that sparked a lot of controversy. They named a whopping 403 species of wasps. Typically what one does in a big revision like that is one writes a morphological key that distinguishes all the species. So you would start off saying blackheads versus whiteheads and then go through all those 400 species and distinguish each one morphologically. Well, I skipped that. So he skipped using the morphological key, the thing that describes the specimen's appearance. How did he classify them then? I think I might have a good idea. Yeah, and you'd be right, Phoebe. He only used DNA barcoding. Remember, even Michael himself says he likes to use morphology in addition to DNA barcoding as a sort of final check and correction. But this just has a list of hundreds of specimens, some photographs and the barcodes. This upset many people. Now, Phoebe, have you ever wondered who decides what should happen when people get upset about this? Um, I've literally never thought about it up until now. When debates like this happen, people turn to the rules set by the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature. Our role as commissioners is really sort of analogous to the Supreme Court of how names of animals are established. We write the rule books and then we make rulings on cases where there's some dispute about how to interpret those rules. I'm Richard Pyle. I am Senior Curator of Ichthyology at Bishop Museum in Honolulu. I'm also a commissioner on the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature. 
Richard says a lot of people are talking about this paper. Sharkey's paper is actually sort of triggered something that's been brewing for over a decade now, which is what is the role of DNA sequencing and particularly barcodes in taxonomy, in deciding what species are what. And I think he and his co-authors sort of deliberately were being provocative. We were trying to make a statement, definitely. The statement was that morphology doesn't work. The statement was that if we're going to finish recording the diversity of life on Earth, we're going to have to use accelerated, efficient methods to do so. And here's one. It was meant really to be an example to the taxonomic community. And in a sense, threw down a gauntlet. And it had a predictable response. And Richard says that response is part of a deeper debate. The bigger debate, the bigger question is whether or not this represents good taxonomy or bad taxonomy. The commission doesn't regulate taxonomy. It only regulates the names assigned to taxa. And so the real heavy debate is about... Is this the way we want to define new species around us? Is it a practical way to define new species? Is it consistent with how species have been defined for the last 250 years? This is where the really interesting parts of the debate come into play. For now, no one has asked the Commission to do a formal review of whether this paper fits the code. But people are still talking about the controversy. And Richard thinks most people feel it does meet the requirements of the code. And that's largely because the code is a bit vague about this subject. It was written when the technology was in its infancy. It didn't give guidelines for a technology that wasn't relevant. But the most interesting question isn't whether Michael's DNA-only descriptions meet the requirements of this code. It's whether this will be allowed under the future code that they're in the process of writing. Right now we're working on the next fifth edition. So we're watching this debate very carefully and we're discussing among ourselves how we should alter the wording of our next edition of the code to explicitly accommodate or regulate or limit the use of these kinds of characters in the future. And we have to keep in mind that taxonomy lasts for centuries. So names matter over long periods of time. We can't make rules that apply only to this decade. We have to think about how the future of taxonomy is going to be as well as the present and the past. And what's Rich's personal opinion? Is he for or against DNA barcoding? He says he sees it as a really powerful tool. And it's not so much a question of whether it should be used, but whether it's the only tool that should be used. And he brought up an interesting point about current accessibility if science were only to use barcoding. We're at this inflection point in science where not all scientists have equal access to taxonomy to be able to acquire DNA sequences. So as a very practical matter, if I find a species out in the field and I want to know whether it's one of the ones that they recently described, I really don't have any way of doing that unless I have access to DNA sequencing. So that is somewhat of an impediment, a practical impediment to deciding whether or not the bug that just bit me is something that has already been named or something that hasn't yet been named. Patrick, the decisions of how we use this technology is going to have such significant implications. I'm thinking about the people I spoke to in the last episode about fungi. And although they didn't think it was the only tool to use, they all considered it a great advancement in how we tell species apart. And where will this technology be in a decade or two? Will we be reading more of the complete genomes of plants, animals and fungi with these futuristic machines Paul envisions crawling the earth? 
For now, so much of this seems to be a debate on values. Do we value precision and do a full DNA sequence or only use DNA barcoding along with morphology? Or do we value more speed and use DNA barcoding to try to reclassify species as fast as possible? And, crucially, I think, will there be a political will to use that data to solve the biodiversity crisis? We often talk about biodiversity loss as if we know exactly what we're losing, but we don't. We could be losing thousands of species every year that we never knew existed and routinely misunderstanding those that we think we know. You've been listening to the Age of Extinction takeover of Science Weekly. I'm Patrick Greenfield. I'm Phoebe Weston, and we're biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. This episode was produced by Tiffany Cassidy. The executive producer was Max Sanderson. And the commissioning editor for Age of Extinction is Max Bonato. The Age of Extinction project is supported by the Band Foundation, the Wiss Foundation and the Oak Foundation. If you want to find out more about this content, head over to the podcast page at theguardian.com. We've received lots of lovely emails since we started these podcasts, so keep them coming. And if you have any thoughts, feedback or ideas for future episodes, drop us a line. The email is scienceweekly at theguardian.com. See you next time. great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.